Hey y'all, we are back with another episode of In It Together, a podcast for white allies. This is going to be our last episode of the season. Yes, after a year of doing this, we are instituting seasons and we will be back this fall with all new content and new offerings. We are very excited and going to take some time to plan that out. So enjoy the episode and we will see you in a few months. Welcome back to our series on money and power. I know it's been a minute, Tamir. Summer has happened. <laughs> <laughs> Summer has happened. Life has happened. Um, yeah, we just chose to take some time to give space for some personal things each of us was dealing with. Um, but we're glad to be back today. We are glad to be back. And we're glad to be back with this kind of series topic uh, in which we've been exploring the ways that white people can cede money and power in the name of advancing racial justice. And in our last couple episodes, we dug into moving money. Now we are going to talk about power. And one thing that we know is that communities of color have been calling on white people to release power for decades. Uh, but I think a question that comes up for us and for a lot of other white people is like, what does that mean in practice? What does that really look like? What kinds of power should we give away? How much? How do we actually do it? Like, how much power do we need in order to live and be self-preserved? Like, so we really felt like if we want to answer this call, we need to get clearer about our answers to some of these questions. Mm-hmm. So let's start from the basics, the nitty gritty. What do we mean by power? Tamir, how do you think about power? Oh, I don't know how nitty gritty this is going to be, but I, <laughs> in, in the abstract, I think of power as operating on a few different levels. So one is the ability to determine the course of one's own life. This is often called self-sovereignty or self-determination. Mm-hmm. Um, another is the ability to influence others and shape systems. Um and another is the ability to affect the course of other people's lives. Mm. So this isn't like the dictionary or like management literature definition of power, which is usually some version of the ability to make things happen, which I think mm. might be your definition of power or yeah, part of it. Um, I think yeah. you're about to go talk about that. So I'll just uh, step aside. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I do think about it in really, I love how you think about it in these d- different levels. And I, I do think about it as this kind of ability to make something happen and that something can be a lot of things, right? It could be a small thing, like choosing what to eat for lunch or who to spend time with, which probably fits into kind of the self-sovereignty, self-determination that you talked about. Mm. Uh, It could be a big thing, like where to move a multinational corporation, how to enforce a human rights policy. I think that gets into systems and shaping other people's lives. Um, Or obviously like a million things in between. Those are just some examples. So I think about, I think that definition is helpful for me because it doesn't have kind of like a moral imperative on it, like, Mm. like ability to make something happen. Like you can make harmful things happen. You can make things happen that have helpful impacts. Um, So that just helps me orient around power, not being inherently a negative or a positive thing. It's a thing we can use in different ways. Yeah. And I know one thing we talked about too, in prepping for this was like, power with versus power over as helpful frames for thinking about power on that interpersonal level. Um, And like, in addition to considering what kind of impact exerting power in a specific way has, like, so when I think about power with, I think about that as shared decision-making collaboration on a task or project, like we are (laughs) exerting power with one another. Um, And for me, that looks like being really clear and transparent about what each person is doing and how each person can participate in a space. 
but when I think about power over, that looks like making decisions for someone without like their meaningful participation in that decision making. Like it, for me, it feels mm-hmm. power over feels hierarchical. Often there isn't an explicit agreement around participating in that hierarchy. Um, mm-hmm. And I feel like it can really stem from a paternalistic like mentality, like I know what's best for you sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. And it's important, I think, for us to note that um, in most of the world, power is racialized, right? Mm. So white people tend to have power over. White people tend to be able to shape the course of the lives of people of color. Say you are a manager and there are people of color on your staff, right? Um, And across all of our systems, and we're about to talk about this more in this segment on the ways we have power that we shouldn't, white people and people with other markers of privilege like um, men, able-bodied folks have consistently greater levels of power in the systems that we live in. Mm, yes, yes, yes. Yeah. Thanks for kind of naming that context for us. Yeah. So let's get into the second piece. Like, what are the ways that white people have power that we shouldn't? Like, what are the ways that we misuse power intentionally or otherwise? What do you, what do you see? Yeah. So the first is, um, we have power to invoke brutalizing systems against people of color. So if you remember the story about that white woman who called the cops on a black bird watcher because she didn't, basically she didn't like the way he talked to her when he called her on the fact that she was like, not, I forget Like she didn't have her dog on a leash or something like that. And she was supposed to, um, and was like super explicit about it. Um, so it's like the power to get authority on your side. It can be the same if you have a colleague of color who you have some issue with and you go to your boss, right? And then bias in the workplace can work against this other person in ways that privilege you. Um, so anything that allows you to get authority on quote unquote your side and enact consequences against people of color implicitly or explicitly. And it's yes. explicit more often than I think most of us white folks care to admit. Um, yeah. There's another piece about positional power. Um, so if we look at nonprofits, corporations, government, the military, um, white people are disproportionately represented in positions of power. Um, the nonprofit sector has been referred to as a snowy peak, um, mm-hmm. where there are lots of people of color in more like rank and file positions. And the larger the institution gets, the likelier uh, white people will be in its highest ranks. Um, and not only do we occupy those positions, but then we consciously and unconsciously use the power we have to both impact the lives of people of color with power over and mm-hmm. undermine the ability of people of color to determine their own destiny um, mm-hmm. and build power themselves. Um, and I want to share a quote from um, the Movement for Black Lives uh, in a report they released called Struggle for Power, the Ongoing Persecution of Black Movement by the U.S. Government. And it says, Black resistance and power building threaten the economic interests and white supremacist agenda that uphold the existing social order. Throughout history, when black social movements attract the nation's or the world's attention, or we fight our way onto the nation, excuse me, onto the nation's political agenda as we have today, we experience violent repression. We're disparaged and persecuted, cast as villains in the story of American prosperity, and forced to defend ourselves and our communities against police anti-Black policymakers in the U.S. armed forces. Mm. I think that quote's so powerful. I think it really, yeah, it just underlines how questioning power mm-hmm. can often have, yeah, violent, violent consequences for folks of color. Mm-hmm. I love that in that quote, like, 
the, just the first part, Black resistance and power building threaten the economic interests and white supremacist agenda that uphold this existing social order. Like, I'm glad that kind of the economic piece was named too. Um, yeah, yeah, I really appreciate that quote. You know, it's worth it's worth pausing here just to remind ourselves that like the power higher the racial power hierarchy in the United States is not accidental, and it comes historically right from white elites pitting white working class people and historically indentured servants against black people in order to protect their advantages. Right? Exactly. Um, and yeah. so it has been, and this is detailed in many places, including the new Jim Crow um, by Michelle Alexander, that this has been at least among like some like actual cabal of people, uh, a deliberate strategy to preserve yeah. a racialized power hierarchy. Um, yeah. And on that note, um, a couple of other ways that we exercise power. One is that white folks can shape discourse around justice issues and solutions, right? So we get to frame issues in ways that make us comfortable and that more white people with resources will listen to, which also means we get more attention and resources for doing the same stuff, right? Mm -hmm. Like Tarana Burke was leading Me Too, right? Not as a an organization at the time, right? But the idea for years, nobody paid attention right until the hashtag gained traction among white women celebrities yeah. um and you know the the people of color and specifically black women i know who've been in this work for a long time have constantly experienced that as they as they work to lead uh for justice yep 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 it makes me think about i don't know i guess a, a different branch off of this is like as a person who does consulting work, like mm -hmm. always having to think about what is most palatable for white folks within mm -hmm. organizations um, and really wrestling. Like I really wrestle with that. I'm sure you do as well. Like, yeah. You know, wanting to like push the envelope, like heed the call of the people of color, both within mm -hmm. and outside of an organization to like take action that is meaningful and it is mm -hmm. often disruptive and like challenges the status quo, going back to that quote. Um, yeah. But oftentimes sometimes oftentimes having to tamper that to make yeah. it palatable to white leaders and i mean that's that's part of our job right is to actually and this is this is part of the structural nature of of inequity that like for people of color is basic needs dignity deservingness to be recognized institutionally individual white people unless there is a total revolution which so far we have not been successful in achieving right individual mm -hmm. white people in positions of power have to go through this personal journey of transformation. I remember being the person to be like, whoa, we're talking about defunding the police now, mm. right? Even though that's something I believe in now, yeah. right? And so somebody had to tolerate that from me, even though I didn't have a lot of power, right? And it's not just me, right? And that, um, my colleagues of color have um, routinely described that as an exhausting process. And it's not it's not actually fair, right? That should not be necessary. Like white people recognizing the inherent uh, worthiness and humanity of people of color should not be necessary for people of color to stop experiencing racial brutality. Um, sure. that yeah. is like at its core, one of the, one of the power imbalances we face. Another power thing. I was just thinking about this today. Um, something that call it relational inequity, call it habituated power. Um, but often in my individual relationships with folks of color, particularly in justice work, um, people def like they'll defer to me in ways that neither of us have necessarily chosen that I don't necessarily want and they wouldn't mm. necessarily want. 
and that's a survival mechanism, right? So like my colleague might not tell me if they feel uncomfortable about something. Yeah. They might um, take care of me in a moment when they really need care. Um, mm. They might tolerate some behavior of mine that I actually would want to be called out on yeah. because most white people, and this is not me trying to like exceptionalize myself, right? Because I've been one of these white people and I'm sure sometimes I still am, right? But like when white folks are accustomed to this kind of deference and they stop getting it, it can be a big problem. The day a black person in a meeting says, I'm not willing to do this emotional labor, it can be a BFD and lead to a lot of problems for the person who's setting an otherwise completely appropriate boundary, right? Yep. Um, and so it takes, even in relationships where white people are really like thoughtful and intentional and trying to do the right things, it still takes a layer of like, I hate to call it excavation. I just can't think of a better word, but like there is work to do to unearth those patterns and actually intentionally seek to address them. When you look yeah. at it at a broader scale, like those patterns are invisible because they are already so entrenched that the white people don't even have to notice them. Yeah. 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 It's like there's excavation. There's, I think, I don't know. I mean, like trust building, right? Like yeah. you've got to like demonstrate that like you're not going to, get super defensive or turn, you know, turn yeah. on colleague of color. If mm -hmm. they pull back, if they decide, you know, if they rightfully, like you said, set a boundary, decide not to caretake, decide to, you know, communicate yeah. something directly. Um, like, yeah, I think that's, that's, that's on us. Right. Like, I think that's, that's a piece. Yeah. It's like, yeah. yeah. Continuing to show up in ways that, that make folks of color able to do those things. Yeah. And for me, one of the questions that animates much of my work is how do we do that both on an individual level, but also on a collective level, yeah. right? Like how do you create a team environment mm -hmm. where that is done collectively and people like a personal coach be like, hey, this feels bad. Can we pause? Right. Mm -hmm. And that is not only accepted, but encouraged, right? It's like, yeah, please. I want to make sure that your needs are being met in this moment. Um, yeah. That is not a thing we do well. And I actually think that's why a lot of organization, one of the reasons a lot of organizational racial equity processes fail, because mm -hmm. when there's a history of harm in the organization, when people are carrying old hurt, right, mm -hmm. that hasn't been addressed or or made right, um, yeah. there's no room for that, or the process itself is harmful, right, because it's replicating power patterns, excuse me, of white dominance. Um, there's no space to be like, can we pause? This feels bad. This is actually not Okay. Um, it's like, what do you mean? Like, we're doing all this for you, right? Yeah. Power over. Yeah. That ties into, I think, another way that white folks often have power that we shouldn't in these kind of interpersonal situations is like, mm -hmm. we often have the power to determine the norms, the expectations, the roles and rules of engagement for participating in a space. Like, we have the power often over other people's behavior to determine like what is and is not appropriate. You know, I think the kind of classic example of like a school teacher correcting kids who use African-American vernacular English in their classroom or like a manager chastising their employee of color over the hairstyle being like, quote unquote, unprofessional, like white folks in spaces, as you just explained, like mm -hmm. often can determine the concepts of like what's good, what's right, what's appropriate, and then the opposites of those in yeah. those spaces. And there's also an equivalent of that in organizations where white folks get to determine what topics are admissible or appropriate for be even putting on the table, right? Like yes. if you're having a meeting and somebody's like, hey, this feel like this policy would be inequitable. Mm -hmm. And like that is met with resistance. That is the same thing, right? Um, yep. Or um, they have the power to tone police people when the feedback they get makes them uncomfortable. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I should be using we, us instead of they, them. We just haven't done this in a while. Yeah. <laughs> They're a little rusty. We're also yeah. talking about us for sure. <laughs> yeah. And all of these like, you know, organizational interpersonal examples that we have shared are situated in this broader context in the U.S. where white people dominate pretty much every sphere, right? Like white men dominate the national government, like white folks dominate like the thinky sphere, Um the, you know, we dominate the largest foundations. And then when you get to smaller organizations, as the example you shared of like the snow-capped nonprofit <laughs> organization, like we're, they're still dominated by white folks, um, oftentimes just with more women in positions of leadership than men. So in pretty much every sector, every quarter, like until you get to some of the smallest, most underfunded funded organizations, white people dominate positionally. Um, and yeah, I mean, we can, yeah, in those positions, we can exert dominance over um, the organizations as board members, as funders, even just as well-meaning contributors or advisors. Um, we definitely have heard folks of color who are our colleagues describe their frustration with having to confront the dominance and the dominance behaviors of white people over and over again mm-hmm. in their work. Um, can we talk about dominance behaviors for a second? Sure. Yeah. I think that deserves that deserves some attention. So, like, how would we define dominance behaviors? Mm. So interesting. I feel like my mind goes a million places. It goes to, I mean, it goes to like power over, like broadly, yeah. like exerting power over. It goes, my mind goes to examples of microaggressions. So it's like mm. you know, it's usually not as explicit as like, I am dominating you, you know, like it's mm. like. Yeah, like the examples we gave of deciding what gets to be on the meeting agenda, deciding what gets to be discussed, like shutting down or kind of, I don't know, moving the group away from ideas that you don't think are as valid or could cause conflict or something. Um, I don't know, but that's just me riffing. What do you what do you think about about dominance behaviors? So here's a draft from me. Um, A dominance behavior is any behavior which, regardless of intention, reinforces a power dynamic in which someone with more privilege has power over mm. someone with less. So it can be Ooh. anything from being really rude in an email or being really pushy. Mm. Um, that's a place where I've gotten some some um, criticism over the years and something I'm working on, mm. right? Um, it can be it can even be affirmation seeking behavior, right? Because it requires a lot of attention, right? Yeah. Under the guise of trying to help, it can be attempting to shift an agenda so that it makes you more comfortable. And again, it reflects that expectation of deference, mm-hmm. right? That to actually, the flip side of, of the dominance behavior is that the risk of pushing back, saying no, calling it out can lead to not only more dominance behavior, but actually yeah. the invocation of the system on the person who is setting a boundary. Yeah. Yeah. Ooh, I like your definition more. That was so nice and clear. <laughs> Yours <laughs> was like more concrete that, though. I just like that you like, yeah, named that it's, it reinforces kind of, yeah, harmful <laughs> norms, <laughs> harmful yeah. norms personally between mm-hmm. white folks and folks of color. Yeah. And I think one of the reasons I wanted to pause us to talk about that is just that like, you don't have to be a CEO to mm. exhibit dominance behaviors, right? Like, I think about a white person who like their church brings in a black speaker, right. To talk about 
any topic. And then that white person goes up to the black speaker and kind of lectures them on this thing that they have like a fucking PhD in, right? And like Mm -hmm. 15 years of research experience as though they know better. What they're really saying is I prefer this narrative and this is the one you should use, right? Um, And, you know, so many different examples that play out. So you don't have to have any formal positional power to exercise dominance behaviors because you have power in our racial caste system. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah, I mean, that calls to mind just the concept of mansplaining in a gender Mm -hmm. environment, right? Like, you don't, (laughs) yeah, you don't have to have any kind of positional power or anything to, you know, as a man to like explain to a woman who is Uh educated in the topic, like, you know, how she should understand that topic. So I I am shaking my head because like, I have like a not so secret fear of being a mansplainer. But I do like explaining things. And it's you like, do. you do like explaining things. I don't see you as a mansplainer. I would tell Yay. you. I would. <laughs> you I, know I, would. I will own that. Like I have been called condescending mm. in my, in my like professional life. Mm. And that's, we don't have to unpack all the details of that here, but I have, I have really had to examine when I am in a stance like what the in what the purpose of my explaining is when I am doing it, when it is called right. for, right? And also how that is being delivered because there's an intensity that can come behind it. Sometimes people experience as being shut down. Mm. Yeah. Um, and that like, again, regardless of my intention has a dominance effect. Mm-hmm. That part's I, actually I, something I'm working on right now. Yeah. I, yeah, I think about and work on similar things. <laughs> Yeah, what yeah, how I am articulating and asserting myself and what the impact is. Yeah. Mm. Well, Maybe that could there's... be a whole episode. I was just thinking that too. <laughs> that could be a whole episode. I want yeah. to stick into so we don't lose our thread. Mm-hmm. What prevents us from giving away power? So we've yeah. kind of named how we think, yeah, power often operates, what we mean by power, mm-hmm. what gets in the way of us giving it away. Yeah. Am I starting this one or are you? You could go for it. Okay. Um, so I think one piece, and I don't know that these are in any particular order, right? But I think one of them is that we're not necessarily clear on what it looks like in practice. A lot of us, like when you come from a lower position in the racial hierarchy, you have to know how power operates. It is necessary for survival. When you're yes. at the top of the hierarchy, you don't have to think about it, right? Yes. It's there for you, right? Mm-hmm. So we don't even know what power we have, let alone what it looks like to give it away in day-to-day life. Right. Yep. So I think that's one thing. Another thing is a fear of a fear that giving away power means giving up things that we're deeply invested in, whether that is a, co- a career trajectory, mm. possibility of holding elected office. I don't know why I like have that in the back of my mind as something I might do. I hope I never do that shit. It sounds horrible. <laughs> um, uh, like a fear of giving up some measure of control over one's own life, right? That like by my not maintaining disproportionate self-sovereignty and we could have a whole conversation about how none of us are self-sovereign in this system, which Mm. is probably worth unpacking at some point. Um, But like (laughs) I have even less power to determine my life course and I'm giving it to somebody else who doesn't necessarily like me, right? Um, And I think that that maybe is a segue to something you had. um, Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think what can prevent me and has prevented me in some ways from giving away power is like this fear of if I give away my power, I won't have any left. And those who Mm -hmm. do have the power that I've given away or that they've gotten in other ways will Mm -hmm. use it to harm me in some way. Um, And I feel like this fear makes sense. Like we've seen so many examples of this kind of power over behavior where like 
yeah, having power means causing harm to folks mm-hmm. who don't have as much power. And can we um, can we just call out like how that narrative is used by the right ooh, and how yeah. it is actually false, right? So like if you take that argument to its extreme conclusion, race yeah. war, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, and as many people have said, it's not a race war until the people who are being attacked start fighting back, right? Yeah, exactly. Otherwise, it's just daily yeah. life. Um but if you actually look at places where racial power has been turned over, the impacts have not been as extreme as people have said. So in South Africa today, as I understand it, white people still own a disproportionate share of land. Yeah. Now what, 30 years out of 25 years? I should I should know this by heart from, from the formal end of apartheid. Yeah. Um, so it is not a given that if the structures of power change, that the power distribution in a system will necessarily change with it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. And I also like, don't think we're calling on white folks to give away all of our, our power. Like not only do I not think that's possible, like I think that's impossible because we hold power in so many ways that we discussed earlier, but Mm -hmm. I don't really think it makes sense. Like we're not, I talk a lot about with my coaching clients about like, we're not in try, we're not trying to invert a hierarchy and create a society where people of color have all the power and white people have none. And like, it's that same, you know, that same inverted, like Mm -hmm. everyone should have power to make decisions about their bodies, their resources, their lives, Mm -hmm. like self-sovereignty sense that you talked about. Yeah. Um, And, um, you know, one way that white folks play into that fallacy all the time, mm. I'm just going to be quiet because I don't think this is the space where I'm supposed to talk that that one that mm-hmm. one what do you see the impact of that being because i think i've seen it i've done yeah. it <laughs> yeah so the impact that's interesting so i was doing a session i do this workshop called racial justice stances i know you've you've been to it um and my colleague Cristel and i were doing it for a group um a month or so ago and some of the women of color in the room were like white folks i haven't heard much from you today I hope you're taking this in because we need you to be able to stay in these conversations about race without falling apart or running away. Yeah. And somebody stood up and said, I want you to know, like, I'm listening, I'm here and I'm being quiet because I feel like this isn't my space. And it's like, nobody told you this wasn't your space. That's the thing. It's like, just because you're in a multiracial space doesn't mean like you shouldn't talk. And especially- as there's an explicit ask from folks of color in the room, which is like mm-hmm. a brave thing to do. I just want to name like, yeah. I feel like that could be an ask where white folks could have responded with a lot of defensiveness and a lot yeah. of like, you know, like really shut them down. So like, yeah, yeah, that's so, that's so annoying. Like I get very annoyed yeah. when but I see you, white people do that. You know, I don't, I don't know that I answered the question about impact. I'm not sure I have an answer, but I, I do think about like, what does, what's underneath that. Yeah. And I think it's like, we don't when we don't have the power structure formal and informal to hold us up we actually don't know how to act yeah yes right yeah. like what do we say that is not performative condescending yeah. erasing of somebody else's experience or so vulnerable as to be creating like emotional labor for the other people in the room yes. and that's not an easy thing to figure out without help and it can be like an existential hell that i know i've spent way too much freaking time in mm-hmm. um and I think part of the impact of that is it actually doesn't help anybody. Yeah. It puts more work on the people of color in the space to do whatever the work of that space is. Yep. Um, and it's also understandable. And I think something yeah. we can actually work through. I think so too. I think, yeah, I think you hit it <laughs> the nail on the head with like 
we don't know how to act. We don't know how to like often show up in spaces and not dominate them without yeah. going to the complete other end of the spectrum and saying nothing, which as you, right. I feel like the impact that I see is that it does, it puts more work on folks of color mm -hmm. to do whatever the work yeah. of being in that space is. And I think the fragility that comes with that is like, you can feel it in the room. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And it often feels performative too. It feels like, well, like, Give mm -hmm. me a gold star for stepping back and like not, you know, ruining the space. Like it's very, it's like murdery. Uh -huh. It's yeah. Anyways, I, we've gone off on a whole tangent. <laughs> can I just say, I think of it as learned helplessness. And this also comes from yeah. like being a kid with like abuse trauma where mm -hmm. like, if I am curled up in a, no, maybe I've lost my thread, but it's like learned helplessness. Like I don't know how to do this in a way that feels safe. So I'm just going to curl up into a comma. Mm -hmm. And like make myself as small as possible. And there is a woe is me part of that. Well, I'm just going to make yeah. myself small because I don't feel safe here. Welcome to life for everybody else in America who doesn't look like us, right? Yeah. That um, of course, that's not a good motivator either. So how do we actually, and we've talked about this in past episodes, how do we build ourselves up to the point that we can actually show up with humility and focus? Yep. Yep. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, I love that we went down that little rabbit hole path. Mm. <laughs> Um, and yeah, I, I would love to mirror for you to talk about kind of the fear of loss that we've kind of referenced, okay. like, yeah. Okay. Um, so, um, Ron Heifetz in his work on adaptive leadership and like, I always catch my talk of Ron Heifetz is that he's not, mm, do I want to say this in public? He's not the nicest person. Mm. And there, there are some issues I have, maybe more importantly, there are some issues that I have with his framework and like the way it centers the one person at the top of the organization as the change agent and okay. the focus is overcoming resistance. But he talks about reasons that people resist change of any kind. And one of the biggest ones is fear of loss. Mm. So in this case, um, if I give up my power, it's kind of like what happens to me, right? Yeah. Um, I think we talked about that in the money episodes. So like, okay. if I'm not this leader in this very particular way, am I still relevant? What mm. is my value? in my work, in the broader world? Do I even belong to these spaces anymore if I'm giving away power, right? Um, you can be afraid of losing your source of income, right? Or like if you're sending your kids to private school, we can have a whole series of conversations about that that other people are probably having, right? Or like my career path is gone. Mm -hmm. um, and I think a lot of, I, even you and I in preparing for these kinds of conversations sometimes find ourselves getting into this like, almost intellectual rut of thinking about like DEI careers and yeah. like, if I can't lead in this way, then like, but I still want to do this kind of work. What does that mean? And we're going to, um, I'm really excited for us to have the careers and careerism conversation. Yeah. I think there's, there's a tendency to think about like, I'm losing out on something that I somehow deserve and I'm mm. entitled to. It's a super limiting way of thinking about power. Mm, yeah. Yeah, I yeah, I think that fear of loss is really prevalent. And I'm not I'm not familiar with the work of the dude who made the framework, but like, yeah, I yeah, that fear of loss of relevance, belonging, ego, like your sense of personal value, and then like mm -hmm. the tangible things, like you said, income and career. Yeah. yeah. And some of that is just a failure of imagination. Mm, I know that's kind of comes up for me. I was like, this, this all feels very zero sum. It feels yeah. like you have everything or you don't <laughs> like mm -hmm. you speak up in a room or you stay completely silent. Like, I don't know, right. like 
there's just so much in the middle that there could be. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, we've talked many times about how even like you and I, as like people who spend a lot of time thinking about this, still sometimes struggle with like what our place is in a particular multiracial yeah. space. Yep, definitely. Yeah. But the yeah. struggle is part of the work. The struggle is part of the work. I think the like muscle developing the muscle of imagination is part mm-hmm. of the work. And it's yeah. not going to happen overnight. And it's like something we really have to, to work on. Yeah. Hmm. So what does it actually look like to give away power in practice? We talked about all the things that make that hard for us. How do we do it? So I think there's a piece that starts with stepping back from personal power we shouldn't have. And we talked about some of that around like habituated power, while also proactively looking to support power building among leaders of color, organizations led by people of color in our communities and beyond. Mm. Um, and there's a piece around actively seeking and fighting for structural change mm. um, and redu- and like actively foregoing or redirecting power that is being offered to us that if we stop and think about it, we probably shouldn't have. Yeah, yeah. I feel like the the cultivating awareness is the first piece, right? Mm-hmm. Being able to identify where do I have power? Is this power I should have? Yeah. <laughs> if it isn't, what can I do to seed it, <laughs> redistribute yeah. it somewhere? Yeah. And we were going to talk about this later, but you can actually draw a map, right? And you can start mm-hmm. from your house or your front door down like to your grocery store, to your job, to mm-hmm. city hall, right? Like you can make the map whatever scale you want. But like, if you think about the different layers of power, levels of power we talked about before, like mm. where in those spaces do you have power? And then what are ways you can either disavow it? And unfortunately, we can't just be like, I disavow that form of power, therefore it doesn't exist, right? <laughs> yeah. Like, can't unfortunately, <laughs> that's that doesn't work. But um, at least like, what are some strategies I can think of to um, to deal with those? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Let's get into this piece around personal power, like mm-hmm. not using our personal power in ways that can cause harm, using the personal power in ways that interrupt harm. Mm-hmm. What are, I know we talked about some of our kind of commitments and like ways in yeah. which we, we exert personal power to interrupt harm. Yeah. One of those for me is I really try not to call the cops ever if I can avoid it. Like I had a rental car accident a few years ago and I had to call because otherwise I couldn't get insurance. I could have just swallowed that, but like, it was a situation where like the likelihood of there being a thing was low and mm-hmm. probably it was also before I made that commitment. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, and that's not just a commit, like there is a piece of that that is about like, if an incident involves like a person of color, I recognize the mortal peril that can present for them. And there's also a piece of like, I think cops are overutilized for a lot of things that we should be able to handle in different ways. Mm, yeah. Yes to both. I co-sign. <laughs> I co-sign yeah. both. And, and yeah, Frank, I share that go commitment. Ahead. I yeah, I share that commitment. Mm-hmm. I um have found out what resources exist in my community as alternatives to calling the police. I live in an urban area. There are a lot of, you know, a dense urban area where there are mm-hmm. a lot of different kinds of resources. And some of those are crisis support services for mental health emergencies. Like mm-hmm. I've saved those numbers in my phone to use if needed as opposed to calling mm-hmm. the cops. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's huge. And like even like looking at if you're calling one of those, like, what is their connection to law enforcement? Mm-hmm. Right. Cause there yeah. are some, like there are social workers who are mandated reporters Yep. and they're actually, yeah. they're, they're a part of the carceral system, whether they want to be or not. So like, those yeah. are, 
I'm glad that you have those resources where you are here. I don't know that we do. Yeah. And it's much more of an individual thing. Like if somebody's in crisis, like I might actually have to like figure, like call my friend on council and be like, who do I talk to about this? Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think you had an example. Do you remember the example you were going to share? I don't. Um, <laughs> it's written in our notes. I just don't know what I was talking about. Um, uh, so, I mean, there's like a very basic one that like, there's been a very clear call for white people to do. So let's say uh, I haven't been on a lot of panels these days, but I used to be on a lot of panels and like somebody emails me and says, Hey, you know, can you be on this panel? My first question is like, who else is on the panel? Mm. And like how many of them are, are people of color, people from marginalized communities. Mm. And if I'm not satisfied with the answer, I'm like, well, who else have you talked to? Here are some referrals. What resources do you have to compensate them? Like, if you want me to talk about racial justice, it better be in the right context. Right. Mm. Um, so that's that's one like very clear and like fairly easy example. Yep. Yeah. I think that gets to a question we had around like how do we discern how to use our power and privilege and whether or not we're using the rationale of using our power and privilege to justify mm-hmm. taking power that maybe we shouldn't. Yeah. Question's clear, but <laughs> well if 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 it's not clear, it's my fault. <laughs> then no. um, so I, here's another panel example, right? So there was someone, I, we've talked about them before. They're in sort of like the, um, I'm going to call this like, like the fat lib movement, right? Fat liberation, like body equality. Um, and it was a white person who was being called out for being on too many panels. And they said that they were using their voice to make sense and make space for mm-hmm. leaders of color. But the leaders of color they were talking to took issue with that narrative and said, like, we don't need you to do that. Just give it to us. Right. Um, And they did not handle that very well. So, like, that's a clear example where, like, I think part of it is just like actually saying out loud, this is what I think I'm doing. Am I actually doing it? Yeah. Or is there another motivation here (laughs) that I need to own? Yeah. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. I think that. Yeah. I think that's the, the, really what we can do. Like, yeah, yeah, name what we're doing and think that through and get some feedback on that yeah. from folks who are impacted by the thing we think we're doing. And that doesn't mean you should never use your voice, right? It just mm-hmm. means that there's import, it's important to be discerning around when, where, and how, mm-hmm. right? Like I've taken a lot of time and care to formulate the opinions and ideas about racial justice that I feel invested in that I want to share with the world. It's not my place to do that everywhere with everyone all the time. Yep. Yeah. And we do, as white folks, have power to talk with other white people about these affecting communities of color. Like we do have, I think, the power and the responsibility to get more white people to focus on racial justice issues, to Mm -hmm. interrupt racist acts as they happen where that's appropriate. Yeah. Um, I know I. Oh, sorry. Sorry, Go for it. I had a question for you, but I didn't want to cut you off. Oh, go for it. Ask it. Go for it. So I'm curious how, like, in the spectrum of white people from the, like, overtly hateful to the, like, just ignorant and apathetic, and that, that's like a judgmental way of framing it, like people who don't understand racial injustice and are actually avoiding it, right, yeah. to people who kind of get it and are trying, to people who are trying and making mistakes. Where do you feel like you're most effective and most inclined to talk mm-hmm. with other white folks? I find that I am most in, most effective and most inclined to talk to folks who 
are open to having a conversation. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, I feel like there, you know, there's a subset of white folks, like, like you've said on the first end of that spectrum who are like actively hateful, actively, like do not want to learn, change, yeah. shift the worldview. I don't find that to be a super great use of time uh, yeah. because I think that there are many, in my experience, there are many more white people who are kind of in the middle of that spectrum mm-hmm. where they're like, they don't think about these issues a whole lot. Maybe they think about them a little, but don't want to pursue it further. Mm-hmm. Maybe they have some questions, some misunderstandings, like, but there's some amount of openness mm-hmm. to learning more, to having, yeah. you know, having, and like, I've got to be willing to learn more too, right? It isn't just me coming mm-hmm. in and lecturing someone, right? Like I've got to be able to learn, like, what are their questions? What are their concerns? What are their kind of misgivings, misunderstandings, whatever about mm-hmm. racial justice in general? um or racial injustice so yeah i that's kind of where i land it's like there's got to be some amount of openness um i do try to work with folks who have power who positional power often Mm -hmm. so i want to work in philanthropy yeah um because i i think that there's a lot that can be done right there's a lot that like working with those folks can have um big ripples and so Mm -hmm. it's a thing that i consider what do you think where do you where do you feel like you're most effective or inclined? Yeah, I think I have built a position for myself around working with people who are trying and making mistakes. Mm-hmm. And they're often people who are in positions of power, right? Mm-hmm. Similar to what you described. And yeah. part of me wonders if that's a cop-out. Like even in my own family, when I have relatives who have what I would consider problematic politics, it's hard. Like I have a hard time talking with some of my relatives about most things, mm-hmm. let alone that. Right. Mm-hmm. So like, yeah. you know, there's a literal call to like, go get your cousins. I'm not trying to bring my cousins into this, but like, you know what I mean? Like, um, <laughs> yeah. it depends yeah. on the kind of relationship we have. What That's we think. exactly what I was going to say. Like, just yeah. because you were someone's cousin doesn't mean that like you're the right messenger for like someone who's like, right, you know, that they're going to be able to hear and respect. Or that the investment of energy is actually going to have a payoff. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's the thing. It's like, not everybody is in a place where they're going to hear it. I can like signal, but here's, here's a different, more concrete example. So I have a fear. My town, I think is in like the early to mid stages of gentrifying. It's historically mm-hmm. been poor white working class town. That's not an accident. Mm-hmm. Um, that is a product of policy, both mm-hmm. corporate and government. Mm-hmm. And now there are more folks who I would say are in similar class positions to my own who are doing work, including through DEI apparatus, that my fear is that it's going to turn our town into a really friendly place for upper middle class white queer people and a scary Mm. place for everybody else. Hmm. Um, And I am afraid and have not figured out my strategy to actually, and I might get in trouble for this too, um, my strategy for actually engaging people in conversation around that. Yeah. Without triggering a flood of fragility and backlash. Yeah. I feel like in that situation, it don't I feel like there are probably a lot of policies that can be asked potentially, like at mm-hmm. the the town level, like or even at the, I don't know, kind of yeah, the county level, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, I almost wonder if this would be a situation where you like try to rally folks around like mm-hmm. a specific policy change. Cause it's like I don't know. Like, I feel like mm-hmm. if I were an upper middle class white queer person moving mm-hmm. into your neck of the woods, like, mm-hmm. yeah, I might not be that receptive to hearing that, like, there are too many of me, right? Like, there are too many of me in this but area. 
that's not even what I mean, though. I just want to be clear. Mm -hmm. I have no problem with, I mean, I'm a middle-class white queer person. So like, I'm cool with that, right? I like me, right? (laughs) But it's like, I think that the thing is more that we have earned a reputation for being unwelcoming and unsafe for people of Mm -hmm. color. And Mm -hmm. I don't even know how supportive we are of working class white folks and white folks who have who have lost their connection to the workforce and to the mechanisms of power. Got and it. so like, there's a deeper level of analysis that I'm not sure I've seen. Mm. And that I can't get too much into like what I'm trying to do about that. There's some stuff underway, but I think it will ultimately involve conversations with people who are on various degrees of like, I don't need, I don't even want to think about this to like, yeah. what do you mean? I don't, I'm not thinking about this. Of course I'm thinking about this. Can't you see I'm thinking about this? It's like, mm-hmm. Okay, tell me what you're thinking. Yeah, I know you can't get into it. And I, yeah, I definitely want to respect that. Yeah, it just makes yeah. me think about like, what are what our strategies are for engaging other white folks, like using our personal power to engage mm-hmm. other folks in this work. And that, yeah, we've got to have a variety of strategies and like very targeted ones for, yeah. you know, different groups. Yeah, and this is like, you know, I know that we have had our back and forths on this, but there is really good work on calling people in. Mm-hmm. Um, Alice and I have spent a lot of time talking about the work of Loretta Ross, um, Dr. Loretta Ross, and I have a lot of respect for her. And there are some things about her framework that I take issue with. Um, and her work on calling in is really pretty powerful and foundational. Um, yeah. And there are other people who do similar things. And those are good things to scale up on, yeah. right? Because that is a thing, like, that is a specific way we have been asked to help shift power. Mm-hmm. And if we're not doing it, we're like kind of following following through falling through we're failing on a big i don't know words it's almost five o'clock my time um (laughs) uh, we're we're failing to follow through on something um that is an explicit ask right so we can't say i don't know what to do but it's like actually you know what you what you're supposed to do you got to figure out how to do it right yeah and maybe that brings us back to the cousins piece like the literal Mm -hmm. cousins maybe it is like yeah obviously if they say something problematic like calling them in around that right like maybe we may be the right messenger in that situation Mm -hmm. in that moment um Mm -hmm. yeah i think it's a it's a really interesting balance of wanting to be effective wanting to use the right strategies in the right moment um Mm -hmm. it's not excusing ourselves from that like not you know saying oh i'm not the right person or i don't have the right strategy so i'm not going to do anything but that brings us back to the like where's the imagination and the creativity in the middle it's not just skill and the like skill. calling people in is a skill walk, like yep. helping people move through confronting their own like prejudice and bias is a skill. Right. Yep. And like some people, when they start doing this, get really loud and really vocal and really judgy. Mm-hmm. And it often masks like a fear of inadequacy in doing it. Like yep. it usually doesn't work. Yep. Right. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. Let's move into talking about positional power, which we referenced a little bit earlier, even just Mm -hmm. this question of should white people not seek leadership positions anymore? I know that when we talked about that question, which is a question we asked ourselves, Mm -hmm. uh, we really realized we came to the conclusion that like that question, should white people not seek leadership positions anymore, is actually can be a self-sabotaging or at least Mm -hmm. a question. and. We generated a more productive question, which is under what circumstances should we seek or accept leadership positions and when shouldn't we? Um, And we're talking about when we talk about leadership positions, both jobs and like unpaid leadership positions in our community. Right. Um, Tamir, do you want to talk about some of the things 
that we need to do to kind of answer that question under what circumstances yeah. should we? Yeah. So like, let's say, for example, um, you are a candidate for an executive director position in a nonprofit. We'll call it a local nonprofit. We don't have to. So the first thing is, what's the context in which the org operates, right? Who's impacted by the work? And how are those communities represented in the organization's leadership? So maybe it's an ED, ED position, maybe it's a director position, right? Um, where are organizations led by people of color already doing this work? And are there opportunities to bring resources to them or connect them with what they need to succeed? Um, is there a space for white leadership in this? Or are white leaders already dominating the space? What mm -hmm. else could exercising that leadership look like, right? Like, is there, there's lots of jobs out there. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of jobs right? Um, but like, what other ways are there to exercise leadership, both in terms of formal positions and in terms of how you show up? Right? Um, and some of that is leading by example. Right? Mm -hmm. Like, where is our opportunity for you to just show up and like, do the work and be humble and self reflective? And let that be your contribution. Yep. Um, yep. I struggle with that sometimes, because I want to do more. Mm -hmm. But it is not for me to Yep. Yeah. Um, I love this question that we came up with of like, how am I invested in saying yes? Mm -hmm. Like, do I want the paycheck if it's a, you know, a paid thing? How am I ego identifying with this role? Like, what, you know, how does taking this role make me a good person or whatever, you know, like, yeah. whatever gold stars my ego is looking for? Huh. What am I afraid will happen if I don't say yes, or if I don't get it? Like, I think yeah. that that investment question is important. I think all the questions you just named are yeah. really and we ask. should We should unpack some of this too. Cause like when we talk about, do you want the paycheck? Do we already talk about like, whether it's like, I'm going to lose my house or I can't send my kids to private school. Cause those are very not. different things. That's right? A like right there. <laughs> a lot of us, I, I don't know how much I am one of these people right now. Right. But have built lives that require a lot of income for upkeep, right? Mm -hmm. Kids in private school, expensive house, maybe a fancy car, maybe a second home, right? And like saying yes to the position is part of the way of preserving that lifestyle. Mm. Mm. That's not a good enough reason for saying yes to certain things. Yeah. If it is preserving power over people of color, it is actually corrupt. Yeah. Right. And who knows, maybe one day that'll be thrown back at me. But like, there's, there's truth to that. And on the ego identification piece, it's like, it goes back to what we were saying before about your personal sense of value, right? If your self-narrative is like, I am an anti-racist and I am using my full power to shift systems for people of color, note the use of the word for, mm -hmm. that is ego identification. It's not just like, I'm awesome, right? Like, yeah. like a self-aggrandizement is actually like how you understand your value as a human being. Yeah. Um, and if we identify that value in ways that actually perpetuate power over, it's important to examine that. And think about how that might need to shift. Yep. Yep. So going into shifting systems where kind of our personal power and positional power intersect. Mm -hmm. and one thing we talked about was that we need to be using both our personal and our mm -hmm. positional power to shift systems. Mm -hmm. um, but for the example you just gave, like not in ways that lift up our own leadership while erasing the leadership of folks yep. of color. Yeah. And so here's one that I think it's already widely documented. It's shown to be effective, right? just echoing, right? Mm -hmm. I'm not sure we really heard Tracy when she said X. Mm -hmm. That's a really good idea, mm -hmm. right? Um, I'm on board with what Bobby said, right? Yeah. Like that's really powerful and we are using our leadership to echo and amplify, but we are not centering ourselves. 
Yep. Yeah. Um, no. Yeah. And I, you know, this goes back to the habituated power piece you spoke mm-hmm. on earlier. Like it takes a lot of intentional work, right? Like mm-hmm. ideally, I mean, best case, you know, you start by naming these dynamics from the beginning and ask, you know, how do we counter the dynamics here? How do we counter mm-hmm. the dynamics that that make it so that we don't really hear Tracy or Bobby in a situation mm-hmm. where we, we're yeah. not supporting the ideas they're putting mm-hmm. forth? Um, how can we pay attention to the signals we're being given about how the folks of color that we're in relationship with are feeling and what they might mm-hmm. need? Like, this takes, I guess, like all mm-hmm. things, and <laughs> like all things worth doing and all things in anti-racism work, like it takes intention and it takes, right. yeah, slowing down, I think. Yeah. And also keeping in mind that like for folks of color, masking that discomfort is a survival tool, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So like it requires a different level of attention and presence. And I think part of it is like, and there are different ways to do this depending on the specifics of the relationship with varying levels of awkwardness, right? Mm-hmm. But like, you know, when you're building a relationship with someone, so I have this tendency and if it ever feels like I'm doing why, like if it ever feels like I'm shutting you down, if it ever feels like I'm not really hearing you, if it ever mm-hmm. feels like I'm repeating what you're saying as though it's my idea, I actually want to know. And I hope you'll give me one chance to prove that I will actually respond. Yeah. You know? Oh, I love that. Yeah. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. I love that as a strategy. Hmm. Let's, let's wrap up with like, what do we do? And we've talked about some of what we do already. Yeah. Uh, We talked about naming and noticing where in our lives we have power over people of color. Mm -hmm. And like you said, it could be your neighborhood, your job, your town, Mm -hmm. your family, in -hmm. your faith community, in your state, in your school, in your organized, like literally Mm -hmm. anywhere that you are. (laughs) Um. And really asking yourself, you know, or asking ourselves, how do we know what's mm-hmm. the impact, you know, and like you said, you can literally map some of this mm-hmm. and, and kind of keep this, this knowing this awareness in your pocket as you move through life, like noticing yeah. where these hard dynamics show up again and again. And I can guarantee mm-hmm. that you will notice. Yeah. One thing that I might try coming out of this conversation is like, anytime I enter a space, but mm-hmm. like any space, grocery store, a client's office, a call, just ask myself, where do I have power in this situation? Mm, I love that. I want to like challenge myself to be more attentive to where that's showing up without yeah. like overthinking it. Yeah. I feel like this is a sad parallel, but I feel like as, as a woman, um, I almost always ask like, am I safe in the space that I'm in? Yeah. You know, any space that like, like, is there anything that would tip me off that I'm going to be unsafe or need to kind of watch yeah. my back and not be in this space? And I feel mm-hmm. like, Unfortunately, that is so ingrained, but it's like, that's kind of the level of ingrained that I want the power question to be, yes. you know, that that's just like, kind of always on my radar. Like, yeah, where, where's the power here? Like, what can I, how do I fit into that? Where might my, my <laughs> presence make somebody else feel unsafe? Yep. That one, that one. Yeah. Um, and, go ahead. I think you were going to say no, what no. I was about to say. No, you go ahead. <laughs> well, I'll kick it off and hand it back to you. So like, <laughs> I think part of that is when you ask that question, the key is not to be immobilized by it. We are yep. not inherently unsafe. We have been made unsafe by this system, right? Yep. Um, I don't want that. That doesn't do anything for me. Same. Right? But it's also real. So I have to accept that it's a thing. Mm-hmm. Even with people I'm in relationship with, it is still a thing. Hmm. Yeah. I think for me, not being immobilized by kind of, you know, where I have power, whether I should or shouldn't is 
sitting with whatever feelings arise with that mm-hmm. notice, just being with the guilt, the shame, the fear, the sadness, the whatever, mm-hmm. the grief, whatever it is. And yeah. um, kind of addressing those first, you know, like sitting, as much as I can, like addressing those first and just like naming them, sitting with them, doing whatever I need to do to mm-hmm. be with those feelings. Um, and then when we get to this interpersonal level, you know, not being immobilized can look like having the transparent conversation about power yes. and in the workplace, dividing up the work differently, mm-hmm. naming that we're only hearing from the white folks and not yeah. the folks of color in a room, like actually mm-hmm. just making these things that are un, sometimes unseen by white people, often mm-hmm. very much seen by folks of color, making them seen yeah. by everyone. <laughs> can you give a concrete example of naming power? Mm, mm. God, you're putting me on the spot. I mean, when I, look at it, I know I've shared an example. I think I've shared an example. Yeah, in, in one of our money episodes about like mm-hmm. when I work with folks of color, like really naming like what are the tasks I'm going to take on versus you, mm-hmm. knowing that in anti-racism work, like there's a much higher cost for folks of color, like a much higher emotional mm-hmm. toll is often taken on them in, in engaging in this work. So trying to, I mean, not that we can ever make it totally equivalent, but like, mm-hmm. that looks like me taking on more of the administrative work or the you know work that is like yeah. annoying and that either of us could take on, but like making that clear that I'm going to take this on because I know this is like a much heavier lift for you than it is for me right. to do facilitation work or whatever it is. Awesome. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I know we both have moved or move in organizing spaces. I know mm-hmm. we've got questions around like asking ourselves, are we part of a predominantly white organizing group that mm-hmm. are we talking over leaders of color? Are we drawing attention or resources away from them? And if so, like, how do we shift that pattern? Um, Tamir, I feel like you've done more organizing than me. I know you have. Is there mm-hmm. anything you'd want to share about, you know, organizing that is helpful for folks? You might be giving me too much credit. Um, <laughs> But like, I mean, there's so much, right? I mean, there's also, there's a ton of nuance in this too, right? Because yeah. like, trying to figure out a way to say this that isn't problematic. Maybe <laughs> there isn't one. Maybe the thought mm-hmm. is problematic. But like, mm-hmm. not all work led by white people that attracts resources is inappropriate or wrong, right? Yeah. It's a question yeah. of how that happens and what the impact is, right? So yes. like, here's a here's a concrete example. So one surge chapter showing up for racial justice, we've talked about them before. I've done some work with their their New York chapter as a member, right? Not not professionally. Um, operates in accountability relationship with groups led by people of color. When they're raising money, it is for those groups. Surge mm-hmm. New York, I think this is probably still true. I, I have not been involved with the chapter as much the last few months because of my move. Yeah. Um, don't raise money for the chapter itself. And if they did, it would be a minimum required to sustain basic operations, right? Sure. Um, Search National raises resources to sustain that national infrastructure, which is necessary for that to happen. There have been there have been examples that I have heard of where other Search chapters have operated and drawn a lot of attention and resources without being an accountability relationship with organizations led by people of color, um, where they have shown up exhibiting dominance behaviors towards those organizations and not really interested in even following the surge model around how that works. Right. Mm. So that that's one example. I've heard of examples where 
a, a local nonprofit is leading a body or a national one is leading a body of work. And then another organization, sometimes a white letter organization is installed by the funders as an intermediary that now controls that portfolio and creates a layer mm-hmm. of separation between the grantees and the funders, mm. um, which reinforces power relationships. So those are a couple of different examples and there are very clear ways to not do that. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I don't think your initial statement was problematic. I think like, yeah, that they're. Oh, I didn't say the problematic thing because it was problematic. Okay. (laughs) Well, never mind. But I can co-sign what you did say of like, there, there are absolutely, yeah, ways that white folks can gather and organize um, that don't take resources away from folks of color that don't speak over them or Mm -hmm. speak for them that, yeah, that are worth supporting, I think. Mm -hmm. Mm. I think the other piece of this, and maybe this is a way of saying what was problematic, organizations led by people of color are not perfect just because they're Mm -hmm. led by people of color. That does not justify us in swallowing up the attention and resources that they need and deserve. Yep. Yep. It's a both end. That's for sure a both end. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's also a question too, when we look at, you know, what do we do? It's like, look, asking ourselves, where do we have the opportunities to support the leadership and power building of communities of color who are doing Mm -hmm. impactful work in your area that could be progressive candidates of color in your area, Mm -hmm. could be supporting local organizations for organizing efforts led by folks of color. Um, Yeah, could be national orgs like the Movement for Black Lives or Mm -hmm. people of color led PACs, political PACs. Mm-hmm. Um, get you know we can give them money. We can show up for calls to action. Like there, there are a myriad of ways to mm-hmm. to support the leadership and power building of folks of color. Yeah, and like even within racial groups, there are tensions between the national organizations that claim to represent any group of people and the local groups. And that is like, I'm I'm almost glad I'm not in that because that seems really hard. Yeah, white led yeah. organizations are worse. Let's be clear, right? <laughs> yeah. Um. And that's that's tough. So as you think about local national, it's worth thinking about what are the power dynamics between the national groups and the locals they they say they are in relationship with, and how do they approach that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, but moving moving money and following calls is really yeah. important. Speaking of moving money, we always want to encourage you to move money to folks of color. Um, and one organization we throw for your consideration is BYP One Hundred which is a membership-based organization of Black youth activists creating justice and freedom for all Black people. So if you just Google BYP100, mm-hmm. they're going to be the first thing that comes up, byp100.org. Um, and I also just like Google BYP100 anyway. I have yeah. learned some important lessons about organizing just from the way that they lead. Mm-hmm. And like even that. the space is not for me, but I love them. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. That's fantastic. Mm. If you want to support us, we encourage you to support us on coffee, K-O-F-I. What is our coffee, our coffee address? I think it's it's (laughs) K-O-F-I dot, my God, I can't talk. K-O-F-I dot com slash in it together allies. We're going to double check that right now. Yeah. (laughs) We did say we were rusty. It has been a minute. (laughs) <laughs> oh yep that's the address ko-fi.com slash in it together allies awesome mm. thank you so much tamir thank mm. you friend 
Really appreciate you. Appreciate all of y'all for listening. We will see you soon. Yeah. And if you got to the end of the episode, you get a gold star. Take them where you can get them. (laughs) Oh, appreciate you. 